Hi, welcome back to Eight Words or Less. This is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, eight words or less. Some of you know me already. I'm Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm James. I'm your other host. Well, what better way for us to end season two of Eight Words or Less than with the wonderful Celine Cousteau, a storyteller, activist, filmmaker, and producer of Tribes on the Edge, the film that has been a catalyst for the Javari Project, an initiative to support the indigenous peoples of the Valle do Vajari in the Brazilian Amazon. In September, Celine's book Le Monde Après Mon Grand-Père, The World After My Grandfather, was published, taking us on the expeditions into the heart of nature with different species and to meet the people of the Amazon and beyond. I personally met Celine. We were invited to open an event. We found ourselves around one or two o'clock in the morning trapped on a bus. There was some drama going on. Everyone was freaking out, but we were silently meditating. And it was only the next morning when we woke up to open the event that we realized that we were the keynote speakers. Months later, Celine reached out when she was spending some time in Madagascar with a project which she thought would resonate with me. That led to my spiritual journey at the beginning of 2020, going into Madagascar, supporting more communities there and in the Amazon. Such an honor to have you on the show. So, Celine, welcome. Thank you, Sammy. Hi, James. Last week, we were looking at the book that you recommended, Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth. I guess my question is, why that book as the inspiration for this show? Well, there are very few books in my library that are as well-loved <laughs> as this book. And by well-loved, I mean read and dog-eared and written in the columns and underlined and asterisks everywhere. Um, and it's it's the kind of book that I would read five pages at a time because I would have to close it and go, yes, yes, that's exactly it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for putting it into words. Um, and I really felt that having met you and, and us having the exchanges that we had and this t- intuitive side, that this is a book that would resonate with you as well. Firstly, I also want to echo Sammy's uh, thanks. Uh, it's a real pleasure to meet you and, and to get this opportunity to talk to you. I also want to say thank you for, for recommending the book, because while I'd heard of Joseph Campbell, I, this is what I love about doing this, Sammy, is I don't think I would have ever had the chance to read that or to, I saw the interviews. And just He had such passion and, and watching him speak, uh, such an inspirational man. So, so thank you for recommending that. And, and I also want to congratulate you on, on, on your book as well. I think I'm going to stick with just saying the English title because I'm afraid my French accent's so bad, but uh, on the world after my grandfather. And just before we get into to the wider discussion, is you know, could, could you tell us a little bit of sort of why that came out, why now, and, and, and what can, could readers, our listeners expect if they, if they, pick, up, uh, if they pick up your book? James, I, I, I would completely trust your accent and pronunciation. No worries there. Um, Le Monde Après Mon Grand-Père was uh, a book that, in my mind, was a long time in the making. Um, and I had been asked for many years, when are you going to write a book? And I always felt I didn't have enough to say to write a book. Um, so it had been brewing in, in, in me for a while And, um, you know, everything happens when it's supposed to happen. I was introduced to someone in New York uh, who is a book agent, and I didn't realize I was pitching a book idea when we talked. (laughs) Um, And it just, it went from there. Um, I then decided actually to go with a French publisher because my family story is really deep-rooted in France, and I felt that there was a return for me. Um, I had 
spent a lot of time in the United States. I was returning to France often. Um, and in uh, the fall of last year, I actually sold my house in the U.S. and came to France. So all of it happened um, quite serendipitously. Um, and the telling of the story is because I feel like I've been telling these stories to audiences for a while, but I wanted to do so in a more intimate way. And I feel that a book gives the time and the breath to be able to do that thoughtfully because you actually have to sit there and write every word as opposed to just speak it. The way my brain works is I see connections between absolutely everything. And sometimes that can uh, maybe sound a bit chaotic and a book allows me to organize that. I worked with a co-author who um, really was an amazing translator of this chaotic mind of mine to be able to put it in, the, in a way that flows and basically connects humans to nature, connects humans to other humans, to species, to ecosystems, all while also sharing very personal stories um, of my family and how I grew up. Um, and I just, I really wanted to share these stories and, and um, have them out in the world. It's lovely that using the you know that that word stories and how powerful that is and, and links to, to the idea of myth and, and when I, Sammy and I were discussing this it was there was a lot of focus about how people remember stories how how that is how we learn and have done historically I also love the fact you use the word serendipitously because in the hero story and what Joseph Campbell talks about he, he talks about how often there's this sort of serendipitous moments that creates a path to, towards that journey and it's interesting that, that 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 was sort of the journey of your book as well. I remember when we were having dinner and I asked you, what was it like being nine years of age on the Calypso as you were going up the Amazon and how you held space and told that story? It's, uh, yeah, it stayed with me. So just that power of myth, the power of storytelling. You have a beautiful Joseph Campbell quote in your book, Celine. You say, the goal of life is to make your heartbeat match the beat of the universe to match your nature with nature. What, what does that mean to you? Um, this goes back to, the, to this feeling that everything is interconnected um, on, on a lot of levels, on physical levels, but on, on uh, consciousness levels as well. And, and that if we really start to look at what the rhythm of nature is, and instead of forcing it to work in our favor, we try to move just like a wave. You know, if you're, if you're trying to get back to shore, it isn't always best um, to fight the current, right? You have to go sideways. Um, I feel that that's what we should be doing in life is, is if something is not working and you have to build entire systems just to make it work for you, it isn't with the flow of nature. And ultimately, we're a mammal, we're a species. So why wouldn't we listen to that heartbeat more closely? And not to say everybody should go out and, and um, be planet savers or tree huggers immediately, but just to realize that they are part of a greater formula, then I think we'll have an easier time at being on this planet. Mm. Yeah, well, we talk about going from an ego to an ecosystem, and my notice in nature is nature is consciousness. So I say be like water. Water can be so strong, and it can be so still and gentle as well. But when we recognize the earth has existed for 22,500 times longer than humanity. This beautiful earth of ours is 4 billion years of age. I wonder whether realizing that we, as well as everything on earth, is consciousness, is us stepping back into our humility so that we can go back into that flow. I like the, the word humility, stepping back into our humility. Um, I think that that, sh that could be something that's adopted as something beautiful to do um, with grace. So, you know, I'm interested from a 
almost touching on the, the mythology concepts that, that um, Joseph Campbell touched upon. I, I loved where he said in this book, the only myth worth thinking about in the immediate future is the planet and everyone on it. And I got the sense when I was reading and, and, and watching that you know, Campbell felt that we were missing myths in the modern world and that the lack of these exacerbated some of the problems that we see in society. I was just wondering whether through your work, perhaps especially in the Amazon, have you seen or started to see anything that can address this lack, something that connects perhaps all of humanity to one another? Myths are really storytelling. I've really always thought storytelling is so central to being human. Um, we've been doing it since the dawn of humankind, um, around a fire with sticks drawn in the sand or telling the legends of our grandparents. Um, and, and that through these stories, we can reconnect with each other. And that's something going back to the Amazon and the indigenous people that I work with there that I have seen quite a bit. Um, and and in, in thinking about this question, what really comes to mind is uh, Beto from the Marubo tribe in the Brazilian Amazon in the Vale do Javari is somebody that I met in 2007. And three years later, he um, called out to me and said, Celine, we want you to tell our story to the world. We want them to know we exist. And, and that for me is incredibly powerful as a um, tool for connecting people around the world. Um, the, the second part of his request is we don't want to go extinct. And when, when, when somebody tells you that, you, you realize the importance of storytelling. You realize the importance of, of sharing somebody's existence. Um, by acknowledging somebody's existence, I think that you also acknowledge um, dignity, um, humanity, time for humanity, Sammy. Um, and, and your role in their, in their story. Um, this is a central message that I share in my film, Tribes on the Edge, and, and also in the book, that their survival could be our own. And if we start to look at their stories and our stories, and we start to realize how they weave together, um, I'll give a simple example of why we're completely interconnected. If you look at indigenous land in the Amazon, there's no deforestation on indigenous land, except for illegal activities, which they don't want on their land. Um, and if we break it down to a very simple formula so that we can grasp it, it's actually a simplified version of complex science. But if you look at it, about 20% of our oxygen comes from this ecosystem, comes from the Amazon, 20%. That means one in every five breaths. And that ecosystem is, is giving us this one in every five breaths. And so it follows that we depend on those guardians to prevent the deforestation of an ecosystem we depend on to breathe. It's, it, we can't do without it. And so through that story, we are interconnected. And I, and I would not have imagined Campbell's words myself referring to this as a myth because perhaps I haven't looked enough into mythology until reading this book, but I think it's key to our collective human lives. And so that's, that's the quote you just said, James, the only myth we're thinking about is in the immediate future is the planet and everyone on it. I mean, I literally have goosebumps listening to you. And it's funny, you talk about that and I'm suddenly feeling myself breathe more. And it's just, you know, you sort of one in five breaths and you're like, and it makes it real in a way. And that's how powerful stories are. And I thank you for sharing that. Joseph Campbell goes on to talk about following your bliss. He says there's a quiet place within all of ourselves. And this center is to be found, to know it and then to hold it. He talks about the people who are operating at the top of their game in athletics. They know this. They find that quiet place within themselves. And dancers, they also know this to be true. 
I'll never forget, Celine, when you were spending months on end in Madagascar, you sent me a photograph on WhatsApp and you were at the top of a baobab tree. And as I saw that picture, I thought that's somebody who's found their bliss. Mm. Uh, there's a saying I, I like, which is sometimes you have to get lost before you can find yourself. Did you find your bliss? <laughs> I find my bliss a little bit at a time. Um, finding the bliss, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think it's part of uh, finding your center and, and perhaps your purpose. And um, those words may mean different things to, to different people. But for me, there is a meditative or quiet element to it. I'm not a quiet person. Um, I talk a lot for my work. Um, I'm, I'm in constant movement. I'm doing 10 things at a time. Um, so I don't feel like it's necessarily sitting still for 20 plus minutes at a time and meditating to find your bliss or to find your quiet space. For me, I find it in nature. Um, it doesn't matter if it's under the ocean diving or sitting at the base of, or in this case, <laughs> in a tree. Um, this morning, for example, I went for a walk in the wooded path behind my house and, and I decided to see if my cat would follow. And for 30 minutes, my cat and I were walking on this path. Bliss. How it's informed my leadership, it, I think it goes back to realizing what I am in the world, not who I am, but what I am, and, and presenting that with transparency. And the word authenticity is, is one that I think is tossed around quite a lot, but I do believe that um, if, you, if you look at yourself and what you are and who you are, and, and you share your authentic self with others, it's that you've done the work to peel all of that, all those layers away. And for me, that happens in nature. So bliss for me goes back to centering. It goes back to focusing. Um, and, and adaptation is part of that. Because if you're able to find yourself um, and apply that to a skill of leadership, it's about addressing the person you're with in a way in which they can actually hear you, not just listen to you. And, and that, I think, is an aspect of leadership that requires stepping back in order to then come back in, um, stepping back into a quiet space to return thoughtfully and be present. Um, it's an exercise every time. I, I don't have it fully figured out because it really depends what energy I'm walking with. But I feel that going back to nature really helps me to recenter for that uh, skill of being a thoughtful leader. And I think of the very many challenges of 2020 coronavirus has allowed us the opportunity to maybe travel less and to go back and realize what that center is to be able to connect back with ourselves mm -hmm. as you say to then come back into that place of service and I love your insight around what I talk to people about who are you but you've offered me a new insight around what am I so thank mm -hmm. you I, I loved um, hearing that one of the things that I thought was interesting in, in this book was the, this idea of slaying your dragon, that, that sometimes that path to finding your bliss, you have this dragon in, in, in front of you. And and I think he, when, when Joseph Campbell was talking about it, he was referring to a number of things, to, to ego, to others. But actually, as I was reading about it, it, it almost, for me, felt like that thing inside you that can stop you from, from following that path. Did you have to slay a dragon, I mean, in your path? I think part of slaying your dragon is yourself. Right. It goes back to what and who you are and being able to be honest with yourself about what that is. And, and um, one of them for me is constantly keeping my ego in check when when I uh, react to something strongly is is trying to understand why am I reacting to it. And a lot of times it's out of fear of losing control or losing power um, or losing ownership or losing um, 
the acknowledgement of my role in something. And when you let it go, it, it flows and you realize you're no worse off. Um, and, but I, I do feel like it also takes a, a degree of, I'll say confidence and understanding that whatever it is that you're doing it again, if you're doing it, um, from your core and from a place of authenticity, then that recognition is already there. It doesn't necessarily need to come from the outside, but it's work. So that's one dragon that I slay on a regular basis is just kind of checking in with myself. Um, another one that perhaps is a bit of a tangent, but it's a, it is an answer to the question is the, um, the assumptions of others and, and what people believe I am, uh, or believe I do or stand for, or should be. Um, I have spent a lot of years adapting because that is one of my skills, but I have overdone it. I've spent a lot of years adapting to what others need or want of me, um, which, uh, I don't have the word in English top of head, but it, it steers me away from my path. And that is my dragon because that is being a people pleaser, but to, to a degree where, um, it's about wanting to be accepted and not judged. Um, at the same time, I can't, I can't make everybody happy and I have to be myself because this is the person I live with until the end of my days. (laughs) Um, there, there, there are other dragons to slay. I have to say one of my fears, one of my, the, the dragon I, I, I really apprehend seeing is apathy. Um, when, when I see people who just don't care, don't listen, don't connect, I have a hard time accepting. And so I sometimes hit my head against a wall that maybe I should walk away from, but I just feel like we all deserve to understand. I remember you saying it's hard to care. I say to leaders, it's hard to show up. What we're doing to the earth, we're doing to ourselves. For me, it's so clear. And, and you think, why, why would you destroy your home? Because this is what we're doing. Um, and I, I don't need everybody to be a, you know, a bleeding heart environmentalist. I need them to understand why it matters to them. And, and I think it's important, again, to adapt to that, to say, okay, well, you have a business. And if you want your business to thrive, this is what you need to do. Part of that is the survival of this planet. If you pull natural resources in an unsustainable way, at some point there's a collapse. And that's for everybody. Well, Campbell says, man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does so to himself. Celine, do you think um, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that we're going through is going to to help people come to that realisation quicker? Because you were talking about how, and actually it's to the Campbell quote, you know, what we do to one person, we're doing to ourselves. In a way, there's never been a moment where that's more true, right? To, to survive for for all of us to survive depends on individual action on people uh, washing hands wearing masks take you know caring about how their action uh, impacts their communities um and the health of others do you think that will help speed up this awakening to to as you were saying that the what happens in the amazon impacts us here in uh, i'm in qatar and it impacts us here I have moments of hope in that it was and is an opportunity for a reflection. Um, again, going back to that quiet place of, well, we can't be distracted by as much travel. Um, we're not shopping as much, but we are ordering online a lot more. Um, and and what I've come up with, and I haven't analyzed this more than this thought, so uh, perhaps I need to step back and have more quiet moments. But I feel like there's three categories of people and and COVID will, I guess, groom those perhaps three categories. One is people who have always cared, um, and they're going to continue to see 
their connection to what's happening in the Amazon, to climate refugees, um, uh, to those who are going hungry, et cetera. I think that we're just more aware of the interconnection because we're all facing the same um, the same virus, right? The second category of people are those who are curious, those who have perhaps asked questions but never taken the time to dig in a little bit deeper of like, okay, how is it that a virus has spread around the entire planet and we're all being affected by it and yet affected by it differently? And I think that that curiosity can lead to somebody peeking over the mountain and going, I wonder what these people are doing over here. Or maybe I wonder what book is written (laughs) about this subject. Those, that category, I think, is the one I have the most hope for, because those who are already convinced that everything's connected, they will be here. Um, and, and I feel like that's where we can t- uh, put a lot of our attention, is those who are asking the questions. The third category, I think, are the apathetic. And I'm not sure, I don't lose hope, but I'm not sure that it's, this is going to sound harsh, um, but I have to be transparent. I'm not sure that it's worth spending all that much time trying to convince If, again, we're just hitting ourselves, our heads up against a wall when there is a whole group of people who are just ready to to see. And I think that those are the people that I'm in the service of. Well, Celine, you know the deal, eight words or less. So if you had to distill Joseph Campbell's book, The Power of Myth, into eight words or less, what would it be? You know this is hard, Sammy. It has to be one of the hardest books to try and get into eight words or less. <laughs> I know, it's a real head scratcher. Say yes to the adventure is the eight words or less. And the adventure, <laughs> what does that mean to you? I think the adventure is self and life um, and, and interconnectedness um, and not being afraid of, of the dragon, not being afraid of caring because yes, it's hard, but it's worth living. Amazing. Say yes to the adventure. Well, thank you, Celine, James, and of course, all of our listeners. As always, use the hashtag eight words or less to share your insights and experiences. And if you've not already done so, make sure you click subscribe so you can download our previous episodes and make sure you never miss a new one. Bye for now. 